It's go time. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Welcome to the podcast. Heath, we've seen it again where a player decides to run the ball out of the end zone, gets stopped at the two-yard line, and within a couple of plays, a safety is being conceded. We've had some discussions in the past about safeties, and we're, we're at that point here again. The rule of thumb was always if you're on the five-yard line, it's over your head, you let it go through for a single. I think there have been some rookie mistakes that have led to some of these, but there's also some experienced kick returners that have made similar mistakes, and it's a matter of giving up that single point and getting starting position, unless you have a lot of confidence in your offense that they're going to march the whole length of the field, sometimes giving up that that single point is the right call. Frankie Woods for the Tiger Cats was the guilty party this time. He lets the ball go over his head, but then for some reason goes back and picks it up and tries to run it out. He gets tackled inside the five. Hamilton winds up giving up the safety. And then in this sequence, they give up another single. And then another series, they get a block kick that goes for a score. You necessarily can't say there's a strong correlation, but maybe there is a correlation because we don't know the mental state after that mistake. Did they sort of have a letdown? I think they did. And we've seen the Hamilton Tiger Cats be burned on decisions on kick returns and single points in the past. And not the least of which was last year's Grey Cup game where there was some tactical errors and a unusual single point on a kickoff through the end zone that you don't see very often. I, I am hesitant to believe that there was intent in some of these, but like I said, I don't know what the kick returners are looking at in some of these situations where they, they think there's more return there than there is and it ends up costing them in the long run. Let's go back to the game between British Columbia and Saskatchewan in Regina. Mary Alford, same thing. Picks up the ball at the goal line, gets nowhere, and then the Rough Riders get caught in the end zone for a safety touch. After the game, the quarterback, Cody Fajardo, the coach even, mentions uh, Craig Dickinson that that was a turning point. Now, granted, that was early in the game, but to think that that sequence would be a turning point is quite interesting. Mario Alford has certainly been the topic of conversation in special teams in Saskatchewan. We saw him with an exciting kick return in a previous game, but also in that same game gave up a costly fumble to put the game out of the out of reach for the riders. And here we see him again. He was brought in to Saskatchewan to give Jamal Morrow a bit of a break on returns. And it has been mixed as far as success so far for Mario Alford. It has. It's part of a learning curve in any situation when you're coming to a new team. The interesting part of this equation, though, Craig Dickinson prides himself on special teams. And in fact, that irritates him to no end when things like that happen. But what do you do to change it? It's not always changing personnel. It may be changing your coaching philosophy as well. How are you getting that message across? Definitely. And what level of freedom 
and decision-making do you give to those kick returners and for how long? If we see these errors continue, you have to start really getting in that returner's ear before he hits the field and lay out the scenario and, and, and what he should be looking for. There's nothing more exciting in the CFL than a long kick return for a touchdown, but it's very situational and you have to make sure that you're putting yourself and your team in the right spot and know when to go for it, when field position is important. And different stages of the game dictate that as well. If you're in the dying seconds of of a half, you're probably worthwhile trying to run the ball out. Don't give up the single in those situations. But if there's time left on the clock where the other team has a chance to get the ball back and respond, field position starts to become ultra important. We saw previously in a game between Toronto and Saskatchewan where Boris Beattie tried a very long field goal and missed and that allowed Mariel Alford to run it back and when you get into that length when you've got your offensive line and some of your bigger players trying to prevent a field goal block they're not the best at covering when that thing starts coming back and in those those long missed field goal situations that's where you've got a chance for some excitement. Very true but if we go back to our original discussion Frankie Woods lets the ball goes over his head. He does not go back to get it to run it out. Toronto doesn't see Hamilton inside the five. Toronto sees Hamilton at the 40. And one of the worst things, in my opinion, that a kick returner can do is when they turn back. So many coaches preach north-south, get the ball, run ahead, look for your openings. It's pretty rare, not to say it never happens, but it's pretty rare when a kick returner starts to circle back five, six, ten yards that they find the room and gain that outside corner. But you're doing a disservice to your team once you start to turn back. And a worst case scenario, again, Mario Alford against the Argonauts, goes back and forth, is killing clock time in the final minute, and then has the ball stripped and Toronto gets a touchdown from the play. Giving up a single, you keep possession and you get field position. A different topic. Objectionable conduct is part of the package that can get you tossed out of a game. A misconduct foul is something that happens after the whistle. I'm not thrilled that a 10-yard foul, i.e. objectionable conduct, which could take various forms. We've seen a shoe thrown. We've seen players spout off. We've seen somebody push somebody. I don't like that as being a criteria for getting kicked out. It does certainly impact the in-between play activity of the players. You're getting two chances before you get kicked out of the game. It's similar to basketball with technical fouls, flagrant fouls, etc. Once you get one for whatever reason, you have to evaluate and change the way you're, you're playing or the way you're behaving in that game. So many games get really chippy and you see a lot of the after whistle pushing and shoving and and that kind of behavior. So I guess it really boils down to what the league is trying to accomplish by this. And if they are trying to clean up a lot of that extracurricular between whistles activity, then by all means, give them two chances and, and they're on their way. I personally don't mind the way this is being called right now. What about, though, instead of having as a 10-yard foul, if you're going to leave objectionable conduct in as a, as a criteria for getting tossed, move it to 15. Just make it the same as a rough play so that it's a fairly level understanding that if you get a 15-yard foul in two of them, you're gone. I have no problem with that. I mean, 
right now it's flagged the same as an offensive lineman holding. So again, it's the image and what you're trying to project and how you're trying to present the the game and the league. So if that's what you're trying to get rid of, absolutely 15 yards, they're all called the same and you've got your two chances before you're tossed. You mentioned holding a 10-yard foul. Why not move no yards back to, into that area of 10 yards? The reason why I would say that is no yards is a hypothetical. It's a five-yard halo around the kick returner when he makes contact with the football. I would like to see that maybe reduced because you're saying that a no yards penalty is tantamount to a rough play. You're right. It probably doesn't compare. We did see some changes to the no yards rule this year where they made all no yards infractions 15 yards. The rule used to be if the returner catches the ball in the air and no yards is 15, if it's on the ground, it's five. And what we saw was that a lot of times teams would take the five yards if it's on the ground. It's not that big of a penalty when you're looking at a kick returner who's averaging probably 15 or more yards per return. If you can hold them to zero and take a five-yard penalty, it was the right way to go. How does changing them all to 10 yards affect that philosophy? Let's do it this way then. If the returner gains yards, one, two, five, ten, whatever, if there's a no yards, instead of saying it's going to be declined, you just tack it on 10 more. So carte blanche, doesn't matter what happens. If the returner loses yards, then you take it from the point at which the returner caught the ball, move up 10 from there. That way, 10 yards is still impactful because if you have a big return, 20, 25 yards, they're going to get another 10 more on top of that because you were in the five-yard area to begin with. I think I'm going to start writing my support letter for you as commissioner because I think that's a, a great a great compromise on the no yards rule. I don't think I have enough sway in the governors to get that position, but ah, thank you. It's got to start somewhere. It's a grassroots initiative here. Well, if there's one league that's built on the grassroots, it is the Canadian Football League because it's people that care for this league. It's the fans that support it. Did the ownerships do wonderful work to keep the teams pointed forward? Speaking of which, Amar Daman went after Larry Tannenbaum this week, accused MLSC of criticizing the league for the lack of this, that, and the other thing. Famously, of course, MLSC was really backing the idea of joining the XFL, actually was courting Vancouver, the Lions, to join with them to go. Clearly, in, in Omar Daman's idea, is that instead of smacking the league all the time, why don't you take a look at yourself and say, what am I doing to make a change? This is something that I think is going to be a flashpoint for this group of governors, is what do you do with MLSE? Don't forget that Bell is part owner of MLSE. Bell owns TSN. TSN has the rights to the CFL. It could get very messy, but I'm happy to see voices from ownership and leadership of other teams starting to call this out. We've seen a lot of social media, a lot of comments from CFL fans about MLSE and their relationship with the Argonauts and the CFL as a whole. The feeling is often that the Argonauts are the afterthought in the MLSE portfolio. There are wonderful, dedicated Argonauts fans, and I want to give them all a shout out because they are what is keeping this going. 
this was part of the the new leadership of teams that we've talked about. Amar Daman, along with Victor Kui, Gary Stern, are very vocal and excited to be involved in the CFL and to see another team whose leadership doesn't seem to care as much. It's hurtful to these guys. They've got into this league recently. To be fair to MLSE, while they may not give the outward appearance that the Argonauts are front of mind, they do spend money on the franchise in terms of getting coaching talent, player talent. That side of the equation, I think, is fine. It's just the where their focus seems to turn is in these hot summer days when the Blue Jays seem to be doing well in Major League Baseball, they get caught up in that. And this is the thing when you've got a really big corporate entity that has so many arms attached to it, it's sometimes some of them get ignored because the other ones are consuming a lot of the energy. One solution to that, though, is really cross-promotion. There's plenty of opportunity to have members of the Argonauts throw out the first pitch at a Blue Jays game. There's tie-ins with Toronto FC. There, there are so many of those other options that you can do that are pretty simple to help build the brand. And realistically, MLSE is the sports entity in Toronto that ha- has their hand in all of these major sports. So yes, the CFL is the probably least expensive to run out of all of those, but there's no reason they can't look at this and go, we've got 10,000 per game right now. What, what would it look like if we're averaging 15,000 and how do we get there? Look at what British Columbia did on opening night. They brought in a band, the crowd swelled to over 30,000. And this is the thing, even Montreal for as poor at times as that team has been, they are still drawing very well. And part of it is this excited enthusiasm coming from ownership, that they're pushing their product and saying, hey, we matter. This is why. Come out and be a part of this. The Argonauts seem quieter on that front. If you're going to make the Argonauts matter, you've got to be in front. This is where my cross-promotion comes into play, right? You've got four other sporting events that you can bring those players in to make an appearance celebrate why not have damon allen dropping a puck at a leafs game in conjunction with an anniversary of a gray cup there's things like that that in my mind seem to be an easy promotion well we've seen the head coach of the toronto raptors at argonauts games there's i think within the entities there's probably a lot of respect for what the other is going through it's just that when you get to the ivory tower, that's where the the decisions are taken differently. And you're quite right. Of the projects that they have on the go, the Argonauts are probably the least expensive overall. Salary cap is a very modest five and a half million. Your other expenses maybe are another five million, ten million. So it's fifteen to twenty million and, and this team is is operating quite smoothly. That wouldn't even pay for part of the starting lineup of the Jays, the Leafs, or the Raptors. It's it's an economy of scale that it makes it very difficult for that giant of an operation. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned previously, you look at these new owners and presidents of these teams, and, and that's exactly, they are not the established 
that's what we've always done mentality. They are looking at new ideas. We've got a concert in BC. We've got a singles mixer night in Edmonton. We've got Gary Stern on Twitter guaranteeing wins and calling out the TSN panel, mocking the complaints about the air horn. There's so many things that these guys are doing that are shaking things up. How about the helmet poutine in Montreal? That seemed to be a big hit as well. It got lots of airtime. Second down. Another week is in the books with the uh, CFL schedule, and we're getting near the halfway point. We opened last Thursday with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers putting their undefeated record on the line in Montreal. Gary Stern famously pointed out that the Alouettes would end that streak. Still has one more chance. But the Bombers, with a huge fourth quarter output, win the game 35-20. to 20. The Alouettes stayed with them for the most part, but then that fourth quarter, that was the huge collapse. Zach Kolaris for the Blue Bombers, 15 of 26, 210 yards, two touchdowns, but three interceptions. Trevor Harris, 16 of 26 for the Alouettes, 127 yards, a touchdown, and two interceptions. It's funny how we talk about teams being close with Winnipeg and then losing by two scores or more. It's happened on more than one occasion. And it's unbelievable the way that the Bombers can close games out. Here we had an example where Zach Kolaris had probably one of his worst games of the season, especially in the turnover situation with with three interceptions. You don't see that from Zach Kolaris very often. 57.7% completion rate is pretty low for him as well, but he did enough to keep them in the game. He threw a couple of key touchdowns, and when push came to shove, the Bombers' special teams and defense stepped up yet again and put that game out of reach. Let's give credit to Janarian Grant, who took a big punt back for a score midway through that fourth quarter, and that seemed to knock the stuffing out of the Alouettes in that final six minutes. Montreal, it almost seemed like they couldn't get out of their own way. So many times they had gotten into the red zone and came away with field goals. They did. There was some a great start by Montreal with a couple of turnovers. They had an interception. They forced a fumble, got great field possession, and three points was the result of all of that great play. And if to bookend that, Trevor Harris in the fourth quarter was under pressure, made some key mistakes down the stretch, and really kind of threw that one away. So it was a real juxtaposition of great play and poor play, but the end result was they struggled to get those points on the board. Had they got 10 points off of those turnovers instead of three, it might be a completely different result. Alouettes put up 279 yards of offense, Winnipeg 362. Time of possession, pretty much a saw-off, which is interesting. But you're right, again, Trevor Harris, one of the knocks against him is in clutch moments. He's not always the guy that upon whom you can rely. And this has dogged him for his career. If he's going to shed that, he has to come through a la Vernon Adams Jr. and mount a furious comeback at some point and pull this team from the brink all the way into a victory. We haven't really seen that much from Harris in his career. We haven't. And if you look at some of the numbers, receiving yards, Eugene Lewis had a pretty solid night, 123 yards receiving, but he was targeted 15 times and nine catches though. So 
he was well covered in a lot of situations that you're used to seeing Eugene Lewis make big plays. Great effort by that Winnipeg secondary. And on Winnipeg's offensive side, Dalton Schoen just continues to put up numbers and touchdowns. Targeted six times, five receptions, 58 yards, and another touchdown, leading the league in receiving touchdowns. He has been a real surprise. Odds-on favorite at this point to be Rookie of the Year in the CFL. Moving over to Friday, the Calgary Stampeders were in Ottawa. Take on the Red Blacks. What a stinker. (laughs) I don't often say that about a game, but this one was... Calgary wins 17-3 in a game where both quarterbacks looked like they were out of sorts. Bo Levi Mitchell, 13 of 27 for 137 yards and an interception. Caleb Evans was 10 of 21 for 66 yards in a pick. Nick Arbuckle actually, in terms of percentage, was the best. 17 of 23, 186, but two picks. It was that kind of night. It was. Some games are diamonds, some games are stones. And this one was definitely a stone. It's still football. It's still Friday night football. There's excitement. You can find positives in the game. Not necessarily a lot in this one. And the biggest surprise for me was probably the play of Bo Levi Mitchell. 48% completion for 137 yards is not the Bo Levi Mitchell that you expect to see, especially against a team struggling like the Ottawa Red Blacks. You, you kind of go into this game thinking it's an opportunity for Calgary to really put a stamp on things and yes they won by two scores but it wasn't that Stampeders team that you're used to seeing. Now Mark Killam was the head coach for the night because Dave Dickinson was not allowed to travel because of COVID and it was brought up prior to the game and it wasn't really touched on after. Dave Dickinson has been in the headset of Bo Levi Mitchell his entire career whether he was offensive coordinator and now as head coach and offensive coordinator. Some would say, well, what's the difference? I will argue that there's a, a patter, a cadence, a style, timing, all of these things that are tied together that encompass the package that Dickinson brings to Mitchell when he's on the field. There were several times that you could see Bo Levi Mitchell clutching his helmet, trying to get the play call. Things were not as smooth is what he was used to. And one thing that you can say without any doubt about Dave Dickinson is he runs a tight offense. It's a comfort level for Bo Levi Mitchell that wasn't there. Defenses want the quarterback to be uncomfortable, whether it's getting in their face, knocking them down, flushing them out of the pocket. And here's a situation where it wasn't even anything that Ottawa necessarily did. It was the the absence of Dave Dickinson that really seemed to throw Bo Levi Mitchell off. Now, on the other side of the ball, as you mentioned, Nick Arbuckle got his most game action since joining the Red Blacks. 186 yards and 74% completion. Is he going to be the starter moving forward in Ottawa, or do they go back to Caleb Evans? I would be stunned, even though I'm not thrilled to say it, but I would be stunned that Caleb Evans starts the next game. Arbuckle is probably going to be the starter because... They see a bigger upside right now. Caleb Evans really stunk against Calgary, whether it was Calgary's scheme or that 
it was just one of those nights where nothing was going to work for Evans, but he did not play well at all. His passing was way off. Wins are absolutely imperative at this point. If you want to do anything to get toward a playoff spot, they've got to try something different. Nick Arbuckle will be that something different. They've got the bye this week too, which really helps implement him as the starter. Caleb Evans is one week removed from being one of the CFL top performers of the week. And he's gone from hero to goat that quickly. It's amazing how, how fast things can turn around. I don't know that Evans gets all the support from coach Paul Lapolis that he needs. Certainly that Lapolis will call the same offense for him and everything like that. But when you hear Lapolis talk of Evans away from the field to the media etc. You just don't see or hear that confidence that he's our guy and he can lead us. Saturday, Argonauts keep their fans happy with a big rally in the second half and a 34-20 win over the 401 rivals, Hamilton Tiger Cats. Dane Evans, 29-43 for 303 yards, a touchdown and an interception. McLeod Bethel-Thompson, 17-27 for 230 and a touchdown. Andrew Harris was a non-factor. Don Jackson was a non-factor. It really came down to breaks, and Toronto made the most of what they got. As you mentioned, a a real tale of two halves in this one. The Tiger Cats... We're rolling in the first quarter and really at halftime seemed to have the game in hand. And then offensively, the wheels came off in the second half and defensively as well. They were outscored 28-6 to in the second half of this game. Again, some late push by the Toronto Argonauts to pull this one, pull this one out. Ticats at one point in this game led 17-6 to in the third quarter. Again, it's a second-half collapse, and specifically a fourth-quarter collapse by the Tiger Cats. We've seen this play happen before. What is going to change for the Tiger Cats to get them through that fourth quarter? We saw them blow up against the Elks. We saw them blow up against the Stampeders. We've seen them now blow up against the Argonauts. It it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on, and where it is... Where does this change? Like, what do you do to affect something that gets this team out of that state of mind where, oh my goodness, we're in the fourth quarter, what's going to happen? We've criticized Trevor Harris a bit in the past of not being a closer and his inability to turn red zone opportunities into touchdowns. I'm beginning to get a bit of a feeling that Dane Evans is not a closer in that the fourth quarter seems to be when he really struggles and there have been costly mistakes and inability to move the ball that just don't seem to be able to hold Hamilton in these ones. I don't know that Evans, you can accuse him of that throughout his entire career. This seems to be a 2022 thing. Whether he's clutching the ball a little bit tighter, whatever the case may be, turnovers have just been an Achilles heel for the Ticats. A blocked punt again goes for a touchdown. Hamilton finds different ways to let the other team win the game. And it just has got to be for Coach Orlando Steinauer. I mean, what do you do? Like He's got to be looking at the chalkboard going, I'm out of erasers and I'm out of chalk. And again, you you mentioned a blocked kick, but once again, inside three minutes, it's a seven-point game. 
Dane Evans throws an interception that's returned for a 40-yard touchdown for the Argonauts that really put this game out of reach and, and took any chance they had of tying the game right off of the table. Very true. And Dane Evans has got to be looking in the mirror wondering, how do I change that? This is one of the narratives that was coming into this week was, could Evans get past that gut-wrenching turnover that happens in the fourth quarter? So far not. And if it doesn't change, what do you do if you're the Tiger Cats? Does Matthew Schiltz become your starting quarterback? You can't play the two-quarterback system. Anyone who listens to this podcast know what I think about it. If you're going to move, start Schiltz and let him go. It's almost a situation where they might be looking at a starter and a reliever where Dane Evans comes in and starts the game and plays three quarters and you sit him in the fourth and put Matthew Schiltz in to see what he can do. Dane Evans looked distraught and disoriented in after that pick six. And I don't know, we've talked about some other heartbreaking losses that they've had where there's been interceptions and fumbles late in the game. This is another one and it's got to start taking its toll on Dane Evans and his ability to bounce back. He is a type of guy that wears his heart on his sleeve. He is an ultimate team guy. He's supportive of everybody else. But is Dane Evans doing enough to get his own psyche through this? Is he finding ways to say, look, I, I, I'm having a rough patch, but I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. Is he reaching out to anyone to get some guidance on this? Every quarterback that has ever played has gone through a rough patch. What are you doing to change what's happening within yourself as much as mechanics and everything else? The second game of the doubleheader on Saturday night, the BC Lions hosting the Edmonton Elks, I had said on the last podcast that if BC doesn't win by 11 and a half, they're not going to win at all because that's just the type of dominance I expect from them. They didn't disappoint. 46 to 14 over the Elks. BC in BC place have put 105 points on the Elks in two games. Nathan Rourke had an okay evening setting records for Canadian quarterbacks left and right. And one stat that I have read earlier this week is he's already thrown in seven games more touchdowns than any quarterback last year for the entire season. 21 passing touchdowns, I believe, already. Last year, the leader had 19. So again, he just continues to put up numbers week in and week out. 34-37 for 477 yards and five touchdowns. Almost all of those stats came in the first half. He was 23 of 36 for 386 yards and five TDs at halftime. The 91.9% efficiency or accuracy is the highest in CFL history. It eclipses Trevor Harris's mark. This guy is amazing. When he feels it, watch out. He is probably the most scary quarterback in the league right now. The last time a quarterback had more touchdown passes than incompletions in a game was Ricky Ray. I believe Nathan Rourke could very well be at Ricky Ray's caliber by the time his career is over. He is poised. He's mobile. He had a rushing touchdown on top of those five passing touchdowns. I don't know if we can say enough about this performance. It was interesting the TSN panel at halftime was starting to wonder if Matt Dunnigan's single game record was in jeopardy and I believe it could have been had Edmonton made a game of this. The BC Lions took their foot off the throttle a little bit in the second half, and especially in the fourth quarter, they did take Nathan Rourke out late, 
as well to protect him, which was a, a right call. They maybe even could have done that a little bit sooner. Rourke's 477, of course, is a record of four Canadian quarterbacks in yardage, beating his own record that he set just a few weeks ago. Taylor Cornelius, not a bad night for Edmonton, 15 to 26 for 183, a touchdown and an interception. But again, Edmonton, though they started well, could not sustain. And by halftime, they were down 37 to 7. Your offense, in terms of scoring in the CFL, is the worst in the league. It's where are you going to find the points? It looked like when they answered right back in the first quarter, we might get a game of this, but it turned into the Dominic Rhymes show with three receiving touchdowns in the first half as well and really kind of put that game out of reach. Six different receivers for the BC Lions had at least three catches as well. So Nathan Rourke spread the ball around. He hit all of his targets and they were there for him as well. Brian Burnham made his return to the lineup after missing several weeks with a rib injury. He had six catches for 82 yards and found the end zone as well. So great to see a star of Brian Burnham's caliber back in the lineup and back to doing what he does best. Darrell Walker was back to form with the Elks, seven of nine in terms of receptions to attempts, 91 yards in receiving. Kenny Lawler was almost conspicuous by his absence. BC really shut him down. He only had two catches, but one was for a touchdown. There's that sequence where they have a muffed punt by Jerron Carter, then they have a fumble, and the Lions, who did not get going immediately, finally took advantage of those turnovers, put one on the board, and once that juggernaut started to roll, Edmonton just didn't have an answer for them. Third down. Again, four games in the CFL this weekend, starting Thursday with the Alouettes in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. Winnipeg, 11.5 point favorites already in this. This may expand, we don't know. The uh, last time that Trevor Harris was in Winnipeg to play a football game, he was with the Elks at that time. He went 9 of 22 for 87 yards. Within a very short while thereafter, Trevor Harris was out of Edmonton and on his way to Montreal. A couple of interesting notes in this game. Winnipeg has the opportunity to be the first CFL team with 400 home victories should they win Thursday night. They're in a battle with the Calgary Stampeders, who are also sitting at 399 home wins. Winnipeg is the only team that has reached the halfway point of their season already. This will be game number 10 for them. They are guaranteed to at least have a 500 record should the wheels come off here in the second half. 11.5 point favorites at home. And we've seen in the past, no matter how close the game appears, Winnipeg seems to have a way to pull ahead. So I see Winnipeg getting that 400th home victory and covering the spread in this one. Not that I want to besmirch the Alouettes, but what is going to change? Is Winnipeg going to cough up the ball far too many times is Calaris just going to have a night that he wants to forget and even with that he when he went 7 of 16 for 188 yards against the Elks they still won by two touchdowns and you mentioned turnovers I don't know how many turnovers Winnipeg is going to need to cough up to give them a chance in this one we saw four turnovers in the last game three interceptions and a fumble and it still wasn't enough to keep Montreal within two scores one problem that the Blue Bombers do have is their 
all-star linebacker Adam Big Hill has missed a couple of practices. It's hard to know if he's going to be available for the game, but on the good side, Greg Ellingson looks like he's going to be back in the lineup. And Brandon Alexander has started to get more active in practice as well. I would expect him to probably miss Thursday night's game. They're going to get there by, and he'll be back for the second half of the season as well. You mentioned Adam Big Hill at, at practice not participating, but Winnipeg seems to be willing to manage the load of some of these star players as well. We see Willie Jefferson, Jackson, Jeffcoat, some of the offensive line as well, taking some maintenance time off. This is their 10th game in a row. It's starting to to wear on them a little bit. They, they do have a bye coming up. I expect Big Hill will be ready to go for this game with that week off. It's one thing that I give credit to head coach Michael Shea he is very good at load management in terms of giving players time off. He's always had that as a hallmark. If you, you're a veteran, you know what's required, and he trusts you, you're going to get the time that you need to heal up, and you don't necessarily have to be running around at practice. So long as you're putting in the time in the film room, dealing with your coordinators. Friday night, we have the rematch which is going to be said a few times in the next few weeks. The Toronto Argonauts and the Hamilton Tiger Cats going up the QEW to Hamilton and playing at Tim Hortons. Tie Cats are minus one and a half, minus two and a half favorites only because it's home field advantage. And we've talked about this a lot. Typically in a betting line, home teams automatically get three points just because they're the home team. This is a pretty tough one to call. If Toronto wins this one, they really take a stranglehold on that East. They'll pull ahead. We we saw them win at home last week, as you mentioned, a back-to-back. It's always a challenge to win both ends of a doubleheader, if you will. Dane Evans and those fourth quarter struggles, I'm a bit worried about his bounce back performance here. So I'm probably going to lean Toronto in this one to get a a second win in a row against the Tiger Cats. Tiger Cats going into last week's play had not lost to an Eastern opponent. The fourth quarter woes of the Hamilton situation with Dane Evans, is that going to come up again? It's a faith issue. Ultimately, do you trust him enough to carry this team through all four quarters? Curious stat with the Eastern division all four teams have allowed more points than they've scored, and yet Toronto has a winning record. Well, another stat, if you want to, if you want to go into stats, Winnipeg has exactly one more yard of offense than yards they have given up on defense this year, and they're 9-0. It shows you, in a sense, how fickle stats are and how fickle wins can be as well. But for contacting the kicker call do the blue bombers win in edmonton there's fine lines they often say which side of the inch are you on and winnipeg right now has been on the right side of the inch i'm leaning towards toronto in this one the argonauts boy it's all about how they start if they don't get themselves in too big of a hole then they seem to be okay but if they really get down early they sometimes implode and this is where I worry about them. If if McLeod Bethel-Thompson can get them a few points in the first half, keep them close, then I think the Argonauts are well within their powers to, to leave Tim Hortons with a victory. It's not going to be easy because four and five, that's a lot of football to face against these guys. You better 
be ready for a grudge match because what's going to happen is they're going to get sick of seeing each other. And the team that I think is more disciplined is going to win the preponderance of the games. To me, this one has the ability to be either a close win by Toronto or a big win by Hamilton. Saturday, we finally get the battle for second underway in the CFL West, the BC Lions going into Calgary, that other team that's looking for their 400th win at home. Calgary coming off not their best performance, although defensively we got to give them credit in Ottawa. BC were just dominant against the Elks for a second time. Calgary being installed as the favorite. Lions, they are so scary. Let's play this out. If the Lions keep going the way they're going, they will be two points back of the Blue Bombers because it's only been the Blue Bombers that have beaten them. It's also only been the Blue Bombers that have beat the Stampeders. So this is the real test for both of these teams to see where they are in the pecking order. To me, this comes down to Calgary's defense versus BC's offensive line. The offensive line for the Lions is so improved this year versus last year. They're giving Nathan Rourke that opportunity to work his magic. But Calgary has one of the better defenses in the league as well. And we saw Winnipeg have success against BC by containing Nathan Rourke. He had zero rushing attempts and also getting up and knocking the ball down. And I can see a similar performance by the Calgary Stampeders in this one. Turnovers, the Stampeders are plus 10. So they know how to get that job done. The worst team in the league, just out of curiosity, if you're interested, the Hamilton Tiger Cats at minus 15. Boy, this one's a bit of a coin flip for me. I Again, much like the Toronto-Hamilton game, I think it's either a close Calgary win or BC wins big again. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Calgary also secures their 400th home win. I think they, they eke this one out against the BC Lions. BC has not lost a game where they've been leading going into the fourth quarter. Calgary cannot allow BC to be ahead going into the fourth quarter. There's going to be your marker. If BC's leading going home, they're going to win the game. If Kadeem Carey is back in the lineup, that will help the Stampeders. They did lose Trey Roberson for the season with knee surgery. That's a huge loss. He is such a fantastic shutdown corner. I'm going to take the Lions on the road. The final game of the weekend, the second part of the doubleheader on Saturday is the Rough Riders in Edmonton to take on the Elks. Need we say more? The Elks have not won at home since October of 2019. That's well over a thousand days. Edmonton didn't show much in BC to make you think that they turned any corners. There were a lot of jokes going around that how many players would not leave the locker room at halftime because they've been cut. At some point, you've got to stop the turnover, and you've got to go with what you got and coach them up. I've said that many times on this podcast. Edmonton plus 5.5 underdog. Saskatchewan right now in my books is in disarray. They've lost three in a row. They haven't done well in the fourth quarter in any of those games. In fact, in the second half, it's been a big struggle. We don't know how strong Cody Fajardo's knee is, if that MCL is, well, I can assure you that it's not healed. This is going to be a big test for the Rough Riders. I'm a little surprised that they're minus 5.5 going into this. The Riders are ripe for the picking and that the Elks will probably take them out. Taylor Cornelius 
has played well against the Rough Riders. You talk about their roster changes for Edmonton. They've had 78 players dress for a game so far this season. So my question is, who does Chris Jones have left to bring in at this point? It's He might be starting to to bide his time until there's some NFL roster cuts now that they're entering training camp. This one, this is a tough week of games. The only one I really feel confident about is Montreal losing in Winnipeg. Saskatchewan's coming off a bye, and both them and Edmonton have most recently been absolutely run over by the BC Lions. So it's a little bit of similar in that BC Calgary game where, where both teams have lost to Winnipeg. We're seeing two teams that did not fare well against the BC Lions now battling it out. You also look at those standings in the West and Saskatchewan right now is sitting in fourth and looking at a possible crossover. Edmonton rattles off a couple more wins and they're right in the mix. I think I have to take the Saskatchewan Rough Riders coming off the bye to pull this one out. I don't think they cover the five and a half point spread though. I think it's going to be a pretty close game. Back in week two, the Rough Riders hung on and defeated the uh, Elks 26 to 16. Saskatchewan's offensive line has been somewhat suspect. They're being shuffled all over the place because of injuries. Ty Rogers, been a lot of concern that maybe he should be on the bench. They should put a Canadian in there, help out with the receiving core with another American out there. So far, the coaching staff has been hesitant to make the change. I just don't see what has changed for the Rough Riders. I, I think Edmonton is ready to win and probably will. Makes it a lot of fun in the CFL when we go into a weekend and three out of four games, we really don't know what's going to happen. And strange things can happen. You never know. Montreal might go in and shock Winnipeg in Winnipeg as well. And then we'll be sitting here saying the one game we were most confident about went the complete opposite direction. When we were looking at these games, remember I said, what is going to have to happen for Montreal to win that football game? We may find out Thursday. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.